0: Welcome to Cloud Control, the podcast about all things past, present, and the future of cloud computing, with some unique and insightful discussions about the journeys of the professionals who power the cloud industry, presented by Spot by NetApp. I am your host, Sean Harris, Developer Relations Lead at Spot, and on today's episode, I've got two big things. Number one, my favorite co-host is back with me on this episode. Phoebe, thanks for joining us. Well,
1: thank you so much for having me again.
0: And our guest for this episode and talking about her career is Rosemary Wang. She has extensive experience in the infrastructure automation uh, space, having worked as an infrastructure consultant where she assists clients with cloud migrations. She's passionate about educating engineers on infrastructure's code, networking, security, and development best practices. Rosemary, welcome to Cloud Control. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on to talk about all things cloud. That's one of the things I am very passionate about.
0: I think it's really cool because... We're both, we're all three of us in this conversation are really passionate about those, all those things, right? Networking, security, how to use IAC um, and empowering developers, right? And so um, high-level overview. Where did you, how did you, how did you find infrastructure as code? Because I'm sure you started out as an engineer doing things hands-on. How did you fall in love with infra as code and want to become work or how to want to work in that space
2: i accidentally stumbled on cloud i think most people do um i was very much into telecommunications and networking um and so i was on like the packet like wire-to-wire packet level kind of uh work and you know someone approached me and said hey you might be interested in doing something a little different and i have a position called a cloud devops engineer that's just a decade ago. And I said, I don't know what that is. I legitimately have no idea what DevOps is. I don't know what cloud is. I just know thing, you know, I just know what I know about networking. And uh, they, they were explaining it to me and they were telling me like, hey, you know, all these terms about virtualization and these fancy terms that, again, still didn't understand, still didn't know. Um, and I said, OK, well, this is interesting enough. There are some different challenges here. Um, it's more on sort of the software perspective, which is something that I wasn't as familiar with. And I went into it. Um, The first, I I guess the first major responsibility that I had in the role was to roll out a change um, to a bunch of servers. And it was, I would say, not fully automated. Um, They were not physical servers, they were virtual servers, but um, it wasn't fully automated. And I remember spending eight hours on a weekend copying and pasting uh, line by line items from a spreadsheet to make the change in which I said, I don't want to copy and paste from a spreadsheet. Um, And so then I started automating how to make those changes. I started to really learn about scripting and then eventually software development practices. And that's how I ended up being, sort of falling into cloud because I wanted to be more automated. I wanted to do all of these changes and make changes to systems that were physical at the time and then make them uh, easier for myself. And that way it was something that I could be comfortable making those changes without having large systems go horribly awry. Um, and I I took away that kind of mentality thinking to myself like, hey, if I can automate this, it saves me time, but it also gives me peace of mind. Um, and that's how I started to figure out how to do this with not just the virtual systems that are in,
1: uh, let's say, a private cloud, but eventually public cloud as well. You, you mentioned like coming from a networking background, which I have so much respect for because I came from a system admin background. So the servers were always quite you know natural to me, but networking was always a little voodoo. <laughs> um, but did you find that there were, there were some skills from the networking side of the house that became really helpful when you moved into cloud and kind of automating the cloud technologies in that, that area?
2: surprisingly yes there's a science to a science and, and mathematics uh to calculating cider blocks um uh, for for spinning up a virtual network for example any cloud you go to right um now now it's sort of it's so easy to just say let me get a network right and a network in that respect um is a very different concept than maybe plugging in switches and trying to figure out how things connect together but without that knowledge i felt like i didn't have a solid understanding of sort of the underpinnings and the foundations of what I considered to be the sort of lowest level of a cloud resource. Um, And it's, you know, I think it's also been surprising how much networking knowledge I've had to apply. Um, We don't necessarily uh, mix container and cloud. You know, they're not necessarily go hand in hand per se, but um, many times if you're running on cloud, you might decide to take uh, the opportunity to use container technologies, right? And container networking was sort of the next step for me to learn. And to this day, I'm very grateful for the understanding that I have of how container networking works relative to a real network, um, not just IP address allocations, but understanding how you can add a network on top of a network, how do you virtualize, right? Um, and surprisingly, a lot of that knowledge about why you should do an IP per container, or IP per, uh, in case of Kubernetes pod, um, has been really helpful today because routing is still, I think, one of the biggest challenges we encounter, as well as DNS.
0: It's always DNS.
2: <laughs> Everybody's blames the network, uh, and it, and it's sad, but we we only have ourselves to blame too because we set up the networks.
0: It's always the systems. Nah, that doesn't. That's not as catchy as it's always no. DNS. <laughs> yes. Um, as infrastructure become, as infrastructure as code becomes, everything is code, right? Because we're moving more towards automation in the cloud space. How do you keep up, right? Like it's such a rapidly changing place. How do you personally keep up with all the changes? Being a developer advocate, you have to be on top of so much stuff, right? Like you're always having to pivot and go play with something. How do you keep up with all that and keep everything, keep your skills sharp at the same time?
2: I think a lot about patterns and workflows because those don't change that often. Um, A good example of this is how do you ensure that the resources or cloud resources that you spin up um, from when you go from you locally testing them or testing them in a a sandbox account go to production and they don't affect the system, right? That pattern doesn't change. You can change the underlying technology um, from different cloud provider. You could change the underlying workflow to... Uh, let's say it's an an ML resource versus a machine learning resource versus, uh, you know, a cluster, a container orchestrator cluster somewhere, right? Something like that. Those change, but the patterns don't necessarily change that much. Um, and so I think about them as patterns. So I look at new technologies and I say, okay, what about this workflow that someone would need to do with this technology? Um, let's say the security space, uh, one of the worst things I'm working on is, How do I get access to a machine? How do I log into it? That workflow is very simple in how you describe it, but the technologies change, and a lot of the times the technologies evolve to make it easier or hopefully easier for you to do that. Um, And that's where I start to understand how these technologies fit together, and it gives me a good opportunity to get hands-on, as well as understand how it applies to a real-world scenario.
1: Are there some other examples? Like I'm thinking about, yeah, you mentioned the great one with security. I think that one is one that we always talk about. How do I get access to a resource? But are there others that kind of always come up when you're talking to people about, you know, educating them for the first time on some of these topics? Testing.
2: I get a lot of questions about testing Um, because I think test. Yeah, testing, testing is um testing is a really great reflection of how insecure we are about how we make changes to system to systems, right? There's a fear around automation, and testing often serves as a way to lay those fears or to make sure that you're um, pushing a change that's not going to affect everything overall. Um, in infrastructure testing and any testing, software testing, uh, security testing, those things don't change very much, right? Um, but we have to change testing a lot because of technology. So if you think about testing infrastructure as code, we treat that differently than if we test security, right? If you're thinking about vulnerability management from a security standpoint, we treat that differently. But if you actually look at some of those workflows and the steps and stages of them, they align very, very closely. You'd want to scan your infrastructure for vulnerabilities. There, it turns out there are configurations Um, and in infrastructural resources that will give you sort of a vulnerable potential um, point of vulnerability as a system. Uh, We just change a little bit about where we're looking. Um, And so I think that testing is the biggest one that people ask about workflow over and over again. And I end up describing very similar workflows across software, infrastructure, security, and you name it even now. There's the latest and greatest stuff that I'm not going to bring up because I'm pretty sure a lot of people do, but uh, even in AI and ML, right? People are asking, "How do I test this?"
1: Yeah, and I'm sure that they're always always applicable as well. Going from the you know data center into public cloud into services, it's the same workflows. There still too, right?
2: It is, and I think that the diff the biggest difference that people have uh, have to understand when going from let's say physical to virtual or so you know whatever these uh, different paradigms are. The one thing that people have to recognize is there are limitations and you have to realize the boundaries of some of these patterns that you're applying. And they are the same, but then you have to adjust for when things are not perfect, right? Um, Testing a network, you know, from a telecom standpoint, is not quite the same as testing, um, let's say, something, a network that you spun up in cloud, right? It's a lot easier to do it when you spin it up in a cloud. But it's not that different than if you decided to test your network using a Raspberry Pi, right? So there are all of these patterns that you have to adjust for and understand the boundaries. Um, And that's where people start to get more confused. I think it's not necessarily that the patterns aren't consistent um, per se, as much as just they have to recognize when there's limitations.
0: You've been working in the consultancy space for a while. and. As infrastructure as code, as a concept has evolved, you mentioned the pattern matching as part of your day-to-day job. What challenges did you see early on that infra teams were struggling with when it came to deploying and managing infrastructure as code? And how have you seen that evolve to where we are now, to where it's almost point and click if you will, right? Like if you if you do it right, like you can even use Gen AI to go and say, spit me out uh, infrastructure script that does X, Y, and Z, and you go plug in your stuff and you go, but what did you see were the hardest parts and how have you seen that at all?
2: The path to production was the hardest for people. It was never actually picking up the code. If you were using code, it was never actually picking up a domain specific language. That had never been the issue, It was people understanding how to get this stuff into production and to do it safely and securely. And so, you know, the biggest questions I would get is like, okay, great. I ran, you know, I ran this on my local machine and I applied those changes. And now I see the servers are in cloud, but my security team is never going to like this. And this doesn't feel comfortable for me. Um, We have a change management process and I don't know how this fits into that. And so when you think about infrastructure as code, it never was really about learning the code. It was about everybody else understanding the way a different way of working. Um, and that was the biggest challenge because a lot of the times of the engineers who were starting infrastructure as code didn't really know how to communicate the differences in the ways of working to other stakeholders who you know, rightfully were asking questions about it. And so when I talk about infrastructure as code now, most folks are asking, okay, how does this fit into my change management process? Um, How do I understand this from a security standpoint? Like, no, not everybody should be pushing changes to my cloud infrastructure. Um, Or how do I make sure that this is self-service, that a development team can spin up whatever resources they need, whether it be a bucket storage or somewhere else, something else that they need, um, and I don't have to block them, but I know that they're doing the right thing. Uh, they're not just opening that bucket for to everybody to, to use. Um, and so it's such a different change in perspective for an entire organization. And the biggest challenge tends to be how do you educate everyone, but also how do you educate the engineers to educate others?
1: Uh, and it's, a, it's, I think, the biggest challenge that I see. So one of those things as well, when you say path to production, that we always hear is around, you know, production has to be more reliable. Production has to be, you know, it has to be up Uh, and, and the code that you might have just built for a development environment or for something you're testing, uh, you know, you may not have considered that reliability. So how have you seen the shift into kind of more reliable um, systems, even when you're using, well, especially when you're using infrastructure as code?
2: Yeah, I think the infrastructure as code, especially if you're doing things in cloud, um it's much easier to treat um everything as ephemeral right or in this case immutability right applying the principle of immutability which is if something doesn't work you create an entire new one and that will work right it's a lot easier than upgrading something in place because infrastructure you know is cheaper right cheaper is a is a strange term but um cheaper from a financial standpoint from a time standpoint so um the The reality is that uh, many times um, I think that whenever we talk about infrastructure as code for in in the context of reliability, we're okay now with making changes that fail because it's easier for us to create entirely new environments and entirely new systems that are working and then we can fail over to those. the other things that I think people are considering a little bit differently now is that they're not treating development like development anymore. They're treating development like production um, or they're treating their production environments as development, right? So testing and production or doing things straight in production has been a big trend um, from a cost savings standpoint or a cloud optimization standpoint. So um, those are some of these newer newer thoughts that we're, we're approaching. And infrastructure's code allows you to do a lot of that because you can reproduce your infrastructure very quickly, um, you can reconfigure your infrastructure very quickly, um, and you can manage and understand how many, just how many resources you're declaring and deploying.
0: That's a good point. And I've, as we were prepping for this, and as, I was, as I've been getting into the developer relations space, because I come from that same sysadmin network guy, moved into DevOps, moved into the cloud background, one thing that I've gotten really good at, and I think you you've eloquently said it a couple of times um, in previous uh, presentations I've listened to is the art of good enough. And I think that we get hung up on having that final product and having it polished and perfect in the way we imagine it on the whiteboard day zero. what is how do you explain that to not only developers, but management who see, how do you explain that iterative process when it comes to cloud engineering that I think makes the space really unique compared to going and racking a server and standing up an application?
2: I always start with, uh, someone asked me this question once, and I thought it was such a great question. I usually ask a lot of the technical decision makers that I chat with. Would you rather something be under-engineered or over-engineered? under. <laughs> I'll let you two answer if you would like. <laughs>
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Enough, right? It's got to do the thing. It, you know, it doesn't need to have all the bells and whistles today. And and actually, we're seeing we're seeing some of the shift away from that, right? Like from over-engineered back to what was it meant to do? <laughs> exactly.
2: And that's where usually, and no one wants to say over-engineered. That's the interesting thing. When when you think about it, no one really ever says over-engineered. Uh, and they'll think about it and they'll tell me like oh i did, i guess under engineered and that's usually the opening conversation that that we have which is okay what what does en- under engineered look like right and i think that what comes what it comes down to is that now we talk a lot about digital transformation we talk about all these buzzwords but um really what we're looking at is how do we make changes faster um and how do we do it in a way that we're confident about making those changes Um, As an organization, from a business standpoint, or as an organization from a technology standpoint. Um, And there's a fantastic resource called Evolutionary Architecture. Um, I believe that O'Reilly Media has a book on it. Um, Evolutionary Architecture, great shout out to those authors. But um, the idea is now we have to evolve our systems to accommodate for the evolution of our businesses, evolution of um, anything we want to do from our customer standpoint, from a client standpoint um and under engineering makes it easier to evolve than it is to over engineer over engineering means you have to scrap everything and then start new again and and that's that's not something anybody really wants to do either right but um uh, that's one of the toughest conversations to have but most of the time it it start, it resonates with people because they say okay it's easy for me to add it's it's easy for me to build on top of things or to slightly change an interface somewhere it's not so easy if I build this all right now and then now I have to go back and change something because I realized it wasn't what I thought I needed in the first place.
1: It kind of reminds me, what you said earlier, how change management had to be educated as to how infrastructure as code work. And part of that that challenge has always been for me anyway, was like, what's your rollback plan? <laughs> and when infrastructure as code came along, I was like, well, my rollback plan is destroy it and then I'll build it again <laughs> because that is the answer. And I think that that um, confidence in being able to do that means that you can start with something that's not quite, you know, doesn't have all of this, every parameter that's needed because I can always just rebuild it really easily and the, don't need to roll back parts of production. Yeah, yeah.
2: I think that's hilarious though, because we, we, uh, we talk about over-engineering. We tried to build really large systems uh, with a lot of things and it's, you know, and we talk about, oh, it's hard to take them down and to bring them back up, right? But that's because those are large systems that have lots of dependencies in them. The more dependencies you have, the more complexity you have, the harder it is to tear it down. So if you can modularize, which is what you are saying before about change management, right? If you can modularize, you can break it down to smaller components and you can destroy those, create those, then that's, you know, that's something that you can always evolve, right? Um, it's not over engineering in that regard. And maybe we sh- maybe I need to change the question to like, you should engineer for modularity, but you maybe don't want to over engineer for such a large like ball of mud or I guess spaghetti system.
1: Full <laughs> of spaghetti. I like yeah. that. I like that analogy. And I guess that that kind of leads to an, another question, which is you're looking at organizations who have started to automate more and who are starting to think this way, are there any other indicators? So modularity would be one of those indicators of, hey, they're starting to get how to do this effectively, um, how to do infrastructure as code what kinds of principles and paradigms they should be adopting are there other factors that you see those companies and you, you if you if you start talking to them you go oh i get it you you're you're on the right path here yeah, yeah certainly reproducibility um
2: reproducing code systems infrastructure configuration any of those uh, regardless of whether or not a team is available is is very important. If an organization can do that very well, meaning someone can just pick up some code somewhere, create it in production or manage it, uh, you know, manage some kind of um, system operationally or make that change without referring to another team, that in itself is really powerful, right? Being able to reproduce um, infrastructure configuration correctly. Uh, or duplicated across the organization. I think that's the second marker for for organizations starting to understand this is a different way of doing things. This is a way that I can do this successfully. Um, some of the other ones I would certainly say modularity is one of them, um, and and the other tends to also be uh, for metaphors ephemerality, right? And um, the way you think about how your systems change. Uh, isn't going to be all, I'll go into some machine somewhere and make these changes. Instead, it's, I know that the life cycle of this machine is maybe 30 days at most. I'm okay with it being 30 days. Let's take it down and bring it back up again or do something else to it. Um, so grasping ephemerality is important, um, not just from a functional standpoint, You know whether you make changes to infrastructure, but uh, it's also very important now from a security standpoint. It's one of the ways that we protect ourselves right, and our systems. And um, grasping that early in an organization, it really sets the foundation for future growth, um, especially if you ch- decide to scale infrastructures, code, and the systems on it.
0: And that brings me to my question, because I'm a security guy at heart, right? Like, and one of the biggest things when I was learning about Terraform early, about ten years ago, right, when it, when it first came out, was Explaining to my boss how this idea that if we go to the ephemeral infrastructure perspective instead of running fully stacked servers that we were managing and had all this automation behind, using this would be, make us more secure at the end of the day was a real hard sell. What are some of the biggest gaps when it comes to code and infra security that you see out in the field and how do you advise people to start addressing them? To bring that automation, that level of automation that you really need to manage the cloud effectively, but also protect your infrastructure?
2: That's a good question. One of the gaps that I see is that there's, um, when people first start moving to cloud, they sort of do this lift and shift. Uh, They don't really rethink about replatforming. Really, when you move to cloud, you need to think about replatforming. It's an entirely different approach to resource management. And if you're creating one server and you're saying, I'm going to exactly map this from my on-prem environment um, to the cloud, you're not going to get much benefit of cloud. And there are a number of people who will just take their Linux configuration on-prem and just port it over um, to to cloud-based resources um, and call it a day. And it does work, but. Unfortunately, from a security standpoint, there's a big gap there, right? Because if someone compromises that virtual machine, now you have to figure out how you're going to rebuild it again. Um, there's also a resource management issue from an optimization standpoint. Are you really actually using 100% of that virtual machine? Are you sizing it in a way that um, is accommodating for the resources? Maybe you oversized on on that virtual machine. So now you're just wasting resources, right? Um, so the... The, problem, the biggest gap that I see is that people tend to take what they have on-prem and just map it directly because it's easy. Uh, but over time, they don't get much of a benefit from it. Um, and that ends up actually having some significant implications from a security standpoint um, and from future management standpoint. Because now you're embracing the idea that we are going to administer and cater everything to this machine um, that we've preserved in, lovingly in infrastructure as code. Uh, and really, the, you probably should move it to some kind of auto scaling group or something that recreates the resource if something goes down or is always going to maintain certain capacity. You can scale up, scale down. Um, and then maybe you have to replatform the application that's on it, right? Because running it on a virtual machine and trying to secure that virtual machine uh, is that singular virtual machine might be a lot harder than running it somewhere else with a different kind of security approach. Um, And so those are some of the gaps. That's probably the biggest gap I see. Um, Some of the smaller gaps tends to be around secrets management, actually. Um, How you manage secrets on-prem is not the same as how you manage secrets in a cloud. Uh, It's very easy to to accidentally put secrets somewhere, um, especially in the SaaS products we have for, like, version control, for example. Um, And so we accidentally push up a credential somewhere and magically that's that's uh, sitting out there for everybody to to see whether even if it's private to your organization, someone can go and look for that secret. Right. Um, And so secrets management becomes also a huge gap as well, um, because we have secrets everywhere. How you manage them on prem um, is going to differ than perhaps how you do it on cloud, in which case you may take advantage of some of the the, the more native Uh, secrets management solutions so you don't have to store them um, in whatever on-prem workflow that you had. But uh, I think that's the second biggest gap. And the remainder, I think, are more just education about education and skills. It's
0: all fun and games until somebody posts your root access credentials into a Terraform script and, ma- and forgets that they pu- published it to yeah. GitHub and then yeah. hilarity insists.
2: Or even more subtly, if you accidentally don't mark that as a sensitive variable, right, and then you don't mask that output in your CI framework's output, then someone can go copy that that password that you someone accidentally printed out uh, and then use it for something else. So it's... Um, I think now people are, are learning a lot more about secrets management, but we have to change the way we think about it, uh, because if you shift, it's just not quite so simple. It's just porting everything over. I think part
0: of that needs to go back on the cloud providers, though, because I don't think the cloud providers do, it, and this is just me speaking off the cuff as a guy that's had to do it, I don't think they document the way to do it in the infrastructure in specific to the cloud, right? Like AWS has Secrets Manager and there are four different ways to pipe in secrets into your infrastructure's code and none of them are documented, right? Like you have to really hunt. And I think the security by obscurity really puts people at risk, AWS and Azure, just saying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's a good place to kind of ask about where does it go from here? Because a lot of it is education, like you said. And, and, And I mean, we can go so far to tell people stop, don't do this thing, this is bad. But I think a lot of that is, comes from, a lot of it will come from making things easier by default (laughs) Um, and and a lot of that being built in. So where, where are some of the innovations that you are excited about, uh, especially around security for uh, infrastructure as code?
2: Um, you know, I would definitely say some of the gen AI stuff is exciting. Um, and not not just for let's just generate a bunch of code somewhere. That's not the real, you know. I think the, the idea is that can we've you all done make it. <laughs> right? We've all done it. I mean, but the point is that can you make it? Can you make it clear what is really a better what is a better configuration? Right? If I could ask my Gen AI generate me a secure, uh, you know, bucket storage, right? Or generate me a network configuration that is secure, um, and I get that information and I get it correctly. Um, it's a lot easier for me to then do the right thing, right? Because we talk about secure by default, but we don't make it easy to understand what secure by default is, right. Um, and it's on everybody to who everybody who writes this code to learn what that means. Um, but how can you do right when you don't actually know what you don't know? Um, this is where I, you know, I joke. it's like a it's the um, known unknowns where someone else in the organization knows but you don't know. Um, and we need to move that to sort of either testing or monitoring somewhere where we can capture that knowledge somewhere. Um, and if it's Genai is Gen AI, but I think ultimately we move it to tests too will also will also help. If you can move it to a test and communicate that to someone and make it easier for them to do the right thing um, when it comes to writing configuration securely, then it's a lot easier for everybody else. Um, and so I think that's the main that's the main one for me. Um, it's been uh, it's been the biggest challenge that I've seen. Um, the other innovations, I think, from an observable are usually from an observability standpoint, from a monitoring standpoint, um, understanding systems better. But um, in terms of making my day to day a lot easier, um, yeah, having some ability to generate kind of the secure by default configuration would be nice.
0: You mentioned Gen AI. And it seems like everybody right now is on a rush to figure out how to bolt Gen AI into their products, right? There are infrastructures, code providers that will let you go and hit a button in your console and generate it. Every cloud provider is trying to do it. How is Terraform and HashiCorp adjusting to that? And are there futures to integrate those AI generations into the, the core value prop that HashiCorp has for Terraform? And how do you secure it?
2: Yeah, so there's a co- There's one big one right now for the terra- for Terraform, but it is um, secured through the private registry, so private Terraform registry. Um, and it, the, if those are not familiar things, that's okay. But um, uh, one of the biggest uh, parts of in any infrastructure as code ecosystem, and probably the biggest part of Terraform, is uh, providers and modules, right? And um, providers allow you to interface with some target API somewhere. So this could be, um, you know. Name your, name your cloud service provider or name a target API, uh, there's probably a provider, a Terraform provider for it now. But um, there's also a second part of this called modules. Modules are opinionated defaults. It's um, generated by community or generated by uh, vendors and partners um, and they're bundles of configuration that make it easier for you to input a set of variables and get the right resources out of it. So you can ask, um, for a database, you could ask for a Kubernetes cluster somewhere, and all of those configurations are available to you without you knowing or caring what kind of resources are going to be created. Um, it makes you it, makes it easier for you to do the right thing. Uh, but as a module author, someone who writes those, uh, it's very challenging sometimes to understand, you know, did I do this correctly? Um, am I uh, writing this configuration away in a way that it will work, right? Um, or am I using the right version? Um, and this version will then cause a different kind of resource to change. You know, do I know these things to be true? Um, do I think that this module is correct? Is it secure? Um, and so all of those are big questions and it's a huge responsibility for module authors. So in terms of the Gen.ai feature we have right now, um, there is test generation, meaning can you generate tests to verify that the module is secure in certain ways, it's functional in other ways. Um, and so that's the the main one right now and that is in Terraform cloud or the, the private module registry. Um, but we also have uh, on our developer portals, mostly for documentation, we have um, the ability for you to just verify what kind of information you need. So you can ask a question and, and it will give you back some information on what you need. So those are the main ones. Um, I can't say that there's anything specific to any of the other products. Um, I'm sure that there's probably going to be some Gen A thoughts on this in the security space as well um in the networking space but i think that's the biggest one and um, as someone best put it to me gen-, uh, gen ai is a feature in itself is not a product um and so you know i yeah judicious you know it's like a judicious you have to be judicious with with what you know where it is and what value it provides um in the case of terraform a lot of it is about uh, helping people who write to a lot of terraform Um, make it easier for them to write it properly and to test it and to verify that it's correct.
1: Yeah, I think, like you said, it's the heavy lifting parts that are hard, the testing, building good tests and building, well, building good documentation, which I do think is very difficult, um, but very important where it can be super helpful there.
0: The community has been a big part of Terraform's adoption and growth. How has it changed since you've started at HashiCorp and working in the developer advocacy space? And what trends are you starting to see people talking about?
2: Yeah, Terraform in the very, very beginning um, was interesting to people, but no one understood its value proposition (laughs) Um, until until people started building stuff around it. Right. Um, And I think that's what we I think I've learned personally about a good technology um, is one that builds an ecosystem. Um, and allows someone to build an ecosystem around allows other people to contribute into it because the value isn't the the fundamental core of the technology. It's actually in the ecosystem and what it integrates with Um, and that is very true with Terraform. That's very true with vault Uh, and people can still contribute to Terraform today. Um, They can still build their own provider. They can still build a module and bring it into the public registry for someone else to use Um, and those contributions are incredibly valuable. Uh, to someone who's just getting started or someone who's trying to just do something with Terraform, um, they can find a resource out there for them to either learn it, build on it, expand on, uh, expand it, or, um, you know, create their own infrastructural resources somewhere. So I think that the community uh, has not changed in its enthusiasm for contributing, but also for educating others. Um, there's a lot of giving back within the community. Um, and there are a number of people who still contribute to the core um, code base as well. And we call them core contributors. Big thanks to them because they'll catch different things about our code base and and look at certain things that are um, either issues or features that could ex- grow that code base um, and they'll contribute back to it. So we still have folks who are, Contributing to the core of it, but we have a huge number of people in our community who are working on the ecosystem, and that's where the value is. Um, if you try to download Terraform on its own, uh, Terraform on its own without a provider is just not much, to be honest. <laughs> uh, what are you going to do with an apply? Not much. Uh, and so the providers themselves are really where the the heart of um, of the the value of Terraform is, and um, we've seen a lot of people still build their own provider. And it's gotten easier. I would say when I first joined AshiCorp, there was no way to understand how to build a provider or build a plugin. Um, and now the community, thanks to feedback from the community and just overall growth over time, um, there's a very uh, there's a nice framework for you to do it, and it's a lot easier now. So those you can you can build, you can contribute, you can still post, um, and people can still use.
0: One of the biggest things with Terraform. Right? Because when I started using it, I was still working on-prem for the most part, but I figured out really quickly that it was really powerful for on-prem stuff too. And I think people see Terraform sometimes as cloud native cloud first, right? But they forget that they can back it and enable that hybrid cloud. As we move out of the COVID, everybody run to the cloud response that we saw in 2020. And you see people looking intentionally at their cloud environments. How does Terraform and HashiCorp's mission help enable that hybrid cloud? And where do you, and how do you guys see that as being part of your ecosystem? Do you see it as being a critical part of your ecosystem? Is it something that, yeah, we can do it, but we're not really focused on it? How, do, how does Terraform view that hybrid reality?
2: Uh, it's a reality. <laughs> no one's leaving the on-prem stop anytime soon either. So um, there are a number of integrations that still have to happen on-prem. Um, people want to use Terraform to manage everything, right? So whether it be their on-prem DNS uh, or um, networking, you know, something, something. Choose your, choose your favorite resource on-prem. And people still want Terraform to do it because they want the same pattern, right? They want the same interface um, for cloud and on-prem. Um, they want to be able to say, I can just create this on-demand or I can fire off a change um, in the same exact way. It's a lot easier to to standardize on that interface. Um, and, at, you know, there was a, someone told me like, hey, we only run this change in Terraform once every three months. And I said, is that still valuable? They're like, oh, it's still definitely valuable, because all we have to do is make one code change, push it up. Um, and previously, this was a two-week change that we'd have to go into every system and try to copy-paste everything and look at um, now it's just make it so much easier. We just do it and it's done in 10 minutes. Um, so there's a lot of value. Um, people still do it, you know, and they still manage workloads on prem and, um, in cloud, whether it be Terraform or another tool, but, um, they use Terraform quite a bit for it because they like having the same interface and it makes it a lot easier from a security audit standpoint, it makes it easier from a functional standpoint, um. And it's easier just from a time-saving standpoint as well.
0: And for all you listening, those are all really important concepts to keep in under consideration no matter where you're running your workloads. If you're running in the cloud, if you're running on-prem, being able to show the validation of your environment and how you do things in a repeatable manner is going to make your life so much easier when it comes to audit time. So. And
2: for yourself, too.
0: <laughs> and for yourself. It makes your sanity so much better. We've talked a lot about Terraform and the tech, but cloud control is really about telling the stories of the people behind the cloud. So let's stop talking about tech and let's talk about Rosemary. You've been in this space for a while. If you had one piece of advice for somebody who was just getting into, say they wanted to follow your career trajectory, what advice would you give them?
2: I would say embrace the opportunity to learn as much as you can. And... Don't don't be it, It's very natural to be afraid to learn something or to fear that you're not going to get it right or to be afraid that you're going to be rejected by a community of people because you're not the expert. Um, but it turns out none of us are experts at everything. <laughs> um, and so to have the humility to go and say, I want to learn from someone um, or I want to learn from this community and I might not get it right the first time, but maybe I'll get it right the second or third time and is the best advice that I could give someone coming into tech right now. And um, no one's gonna get everything right uh, immediately. Um, for the folks who accidentally pus- pushed a database change that dropped a table somewhere, you know, um, it gets better, I, it gets better. Um, and don't let that fear um, drive you to, to do the same thing over and over um, from a technology standpoint. Um, I think that learning has brought me so many different experiences in and out of tech um, and having grown my career in this way I think that you know the reason why I ended up writing a book was because I had learned so much and I wanted to put it down on paper um, and I wanted someone else to learn it too um, and so you know you can say a technical book is a technical book it has a lot of documentation in it and the ins and outs of how to do something but um, every chapter of a technical book is a story of how someone learned something. And, um, that's really what I think the biggest takeaway or the biggest thing that you could do in technology right now.
1: And I'm sure you get this question a lot as well for that person who is starting, where do you, what do you point them at? <laughs> because I'm sure you get asked that all the time. <clears throat> What's your like number one go to, and it could be your book. <laughs> Which is a great. Point. Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't go to books. Uh, I, I actually am a visual learner. So I
2: go to, usually what I'll do is I'll look for a conference, right? A, a relevant conference in the topic space. And I'll just listen to a bunch of different talks or I'll listen to a podcast um, on that topic. And usually it's a good jumping point for what other topics that I might need to know. Um, and then the second step of that is once I get a little bit of an uh, understanding of what technologies people are interested in, um, what questions and challenges people are addressing, I'll go and I'll get hands on with the technology and try to, you know, replicate some kind of workflow myself. Um, and so, you know, this is the one, this is the way that I actually teach folks as well. Where I have a couple of live streams where I teach some folks on my team who are not as familiar with other tools. And what we do is like, we go through and we talk about the concepts, we talk about the challenge, and then we get hands on um, very quickly. And once they get hands-on, that's when they're like, oh, I understand why this is an important workflow. Or I understand why this is a challenge that we need to be solving. Um, and they can map that from one tool to another. It doesn't really matter what they're using. Um, and so that's the way I start. And um, I just watch a bunch of stuff, learn a little bit from everything, write some notes, and then I start jumping off to, to look at some other code.
0: That's a great way to look at that. I never thought about the chapters of a book being the story of how somebody solved a problem. That's, that, that's really, really good. Yeah.
2: It's easier to write a chapter that way. <laughs> it is, but I
0: mean, I, I like now it's going to make, when I read technical books, it's going to make me look at it a little bit differently and see what the underlying message is. And that's just something I just, the light bulb went on while I was sitting here. So you mentioned conferences. What conferences can we find you at? Right. Conference season starting to start up here. Are you going to be speaking anywhere? Is there anywhere where we can find you?
2: Um, yeah, let me. I'm trying to think. So I will be on O'Reilly's uh, Super Stream I- coming up tomorrow. <laughs> Actually, not tomorrow. Wednesday. Sorry. Uh, t- what is time? Um, coming up Wednesday, uh, O'Reilly SuperStream, Um, it's on platform and cloud security. Platform and cloud automation. Sorry. Um, that's the that's the may- upcoming one. In terms of the rest of the year, uh, you can find me at KubeCon. Um, you can find me usually at you know, the cloud provider, service provider conferences typically. Um, I can't say I have any other specific commitments on um, conferences, but you'll usually find me at some of the bigger cloud service provider ones. You'll certainly find me at HashiCorp's conferences as well. So, If anybody's there and you're listening and you want to say hello, just say hello. I love to to meet people.
0: That's a, that's a good thing cuz in developer relations getting out of my shell especially coming from that practitioner background it, i had to learn that really quick that you had to be ready to go yeah because people will come up to you
2: yeah people look up but i you know i just want to hear the most interesting stories right and it, it's not to me the interesting story is not going to be someone who told me like i'm going to be you know i do this with with ai and you know all these fancy things Really, the interesting story to me tends to be, like, there's this old thing that's in our environment, and we don't really know what to do with it, and now we've done this weird anti-pattern, and, like, and I want to hear those stories, because those are the ones that are, like, really fun to to talk about and to learn about with people. Um, so, if anybody has those, I, I will love to hear them.
1: <laughs> the anti-patterns, I like that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Sometime we'll have to sit down, and I'll tell you about how I deleted a 20-terabyte production database and brought it back using Terraform.
1: What?
2: Uh, well done. I do yeah, see this is now I need to hear the story.
0: Yeah, luckily I didn't delete it from the S3 bucket, but that's a different part of the story and <laughs> uh it, it, it's a wild one, but we'll we'll meet up somewhere and we'll talk about it, especially if you're going to be at KubeCon cuz um KubeCon is in my hometown. KubeCon uh, North America is in Salt Lake City this year. Oh, which yeah, is that's right. I get to sleep in my own bed at a conference.
2: Wow. That's, that's going to be
0: fun. But also, I'll be at KubeCon EU, too. So okay. if I find you there, we'll talk about it and have a beer. Yes. I do want to ask one more thing. Because you're in that developer relations space, that ve- developer advocacy space. You came to that background from a practitioner. You've been in the space for a few years now. What would you give somebody? What advice? And this is maybe sounding self-serving because... I'm a year and a half in, but what advice, what what have you learned and what advice would you give somebody now that you've been in it for a while on how to not be better, but more effective at telling, at being, at doing the developer relations, developer advocacy motion?
2: I think that you have to be patient. <laughs> in development relations, you have to be very patient, right? Because um, it's a cause and effect, it's a cause and effect, uh, feedback of sorts, right? And you're looking for that feedback loop constantly. Um, you want to know, like, what are the challenges that your community needs solved? And what are they trying to do? Um, is it something that you can solve by from a product standpoint? And the answer is usually maybe. Um, or is it something that you have to solve from an education standpoint because your documentation is bad or your tutorials aren't sufficient or you need content around it because it's a very niche use case? Um, this feedback loop is incredibly important. And I think, as a new developer advocate or um, if you're new to developer relations, it's easy to lose sight of that very quickly um, because the feedback loop is very long term. Uh, it doesn't happen in a week, it happens over the course of six months, a year, sometimes even two years, sometimes even in my case, four years, right? um And so I think that being patient. Uh, is one of the things that is, if you're starting out in developer advocacy and developer relations, um, it's incredibly important. And um, taking that patience and mapping it to being a very good listener or a generative listener, understanding what someone is doing, asking clarifying questions. Um, they're not wrong. Right. And I always joke, there's no such thing as someone doing a bad thing or a wrong thing. It's a pattern that they've started to do. Um, and we're still here to help them and understand why they're doing that pattern and how it could be better. Um, and so the the idea of just listening and keeping the the open dialogue is very important. Um, and if you can do those two things, you set yourself up self up very well to serve better for your community um, and also just be a generally um, a more effective and in some ways a more happy DA and a developer advocate. Um, because they're not trying to to figure out, okay, chase the next content that that's you know going to give you the views, or chase the next bit of content or video um, that you think has more impact. I think that impact can be measured me- measured in many different ways, um, and
1: it's a little bit harder in developer relations to understand that. And from for the community themselves, like, is there something that you wish that, or I mean, something that you tell the communities to do? Because I think people kind of enter them and, and go, well, yeah, everybody knows everything. There's the developer advocates from, from vendors or from, uh, communities who are really, who know everything and they're the superstars and we love them, but I don't think it's quite so black and white, right? Like everybody started somewhere, <laughs> you know, came in and said, I don't know what this is once, is there any kind of advice that you would give to people who are kind of looking at these communities going, wow, the HashiCorp community is already so big and established. How do I how would I get into that space, I guess, is what I'm thinking.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of you. usually most uh, most organizations or tools or communities have some kind of user group that has the common interest. So same thing goes to the HashiCorp tools. We have user groups around the world they meet in person. Um, It's a great way to just meet folks who are who are interested in the tools. And we get some people who are just not even related to tech. Uh, I've been to a user group and there was an accountant or two there for some reason. Um, and th- they were telling me that they work for a company and their IT you know guys brought up this uh, procurement uh, thing, a uh, procurement request on like Terraform. Uh, <laughs> and they were like, what is this thing? And they decided to go to the user group. So if, if an accountant who doesn't know anything about technology and could, you know is just not part of their day to day wants to go to a user group and learn about Terraform and they're welcome there, you are too. Um, and so, user groups are a best place, are a really good place to start. Um, as well as online, there are a lot of resources and education from a number of folks within the community. They are just getting started, or they're at the scaling level, um, and they're talking about, you know, why they did something. And you can reach out to any of them. They're incredibly nice people who will um, kindly listen to some of your uh, troubles and and offered you some thoughts on on some solutions. Um, and I think that's really the, the powerful thing about technology, uh, the technology community in particular, right? We're all here to learn from each other. There are very few people who are truly rock stars or, or treat themselves as rock stars and will not necessarily help you with um, what you're looking to do. Um, many folks are open to talking about how they got to where they are, um, how they're learning and to help you on your learning journey, too.
0: We love the war stories. like
2: yeah
1: it's it's when things break (laughs) we get get excited (laughs) yeah
2: if every you know like the testing right in testing there's the happy path if we all talked about the positive path we we have all this predictability and everything would be really boring we all want to hear like the 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 unhappy path or the negative testing where it's like you know these things are going to break so we want to know where they are um and no one that i think like everybody will sit around at conferences and talk about the the horror stories or the things where things didn't go correctly um, and what they learned from it.
0: That's a. I, I I was looking, I was thinking just as we were talking about that, about how many times I've gone to a conference and we end up on the war stories talk, right? And it's, it's so interesting how we end up at the same, using the same tech or the same, you um, or we end up at the same place in our journey. And it's all because of those different war stories, right? Like deleting production databases or fixing mail servers and using a Wi-Fi connection somewhere, right? Like all these things have really led us to this journey. And it, it, everybody's journey is different and they're non-linear, but they give us so much. It's like the State Farm commercial. I know a lot because I've seen a lot, right? And I don't know everything, but... I've seen stuff go sideways really, really bad, and I think that, that commun- the, the community aspect is really what makes this space, not just developer, but technology in general, not just developer advocacy or developer relations, but just being a part of the tech community. It's so much fun to just learn from others and just, hey, I'm here, I'm going to join this community, and I'm... you don't have to know who I am right away, but as it grows, that participation makes it so unique compared to other industries.
1: Yeah, I think as well, a lot of the technology we talk about, and we all, you know, we work with vendors, so it's like, as a vendor, you always want to make a product that that solves a huge problem. And so you only ever talk about, hey, we solved all these problems, but then all the people in that want to talk about all the problems themselves, because it's the problem that right? you, if you didn't have this problem, you wouldn't have these, these services or these products or these tools. And so even though we started infrastructure as code as being this way to automate and to simplify and to, you know, add security and so on, it's, yeah, Yes, you, once you get into the actual, like, hang on a second, why, wait a second, before we had these tools, it was, yeah, there was no light, there, was no, there were no books, you know, and so we had to build, we had to build solutions to solve them. And I think that that is a really big part for me, for the community is, yeah, like you said, Sean, finding those common um, ailments, I guess, and then, and connecting over them and then making them better as a community. It's super important.
0: One of my bosses in the previous job said, you're like the dentist of our organization. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? He's like, nobody likes going to the dentist. Everybody hates it until they break a tooth and need a dentist. And then you're the hero, right? And that's how you have to treat IT. And that's one piece of very rudimentary way of ta- thinking about it. But it really has stuck with me because I got to make it painless for people. Yeah, because my dentist won't make it painless for me. No, no, yeah,
2: <laughs> people, you know what? And that's why we also talk a lot about developer experience now too. Um, I think that's why developer relations actually came up, right? Because you know we needed a structured, fu- structured way to build community um, and to make things less painful for everybody, <laughs> ourselves included.
0: <laughs> right, and I look at Terraform, and I and Terraform had to have come about. Because somebody was laying in bed and was like, "I have to go to work tomorrow, and I have to copy all these scripts over to this new Linux host, and I want to make it easier." Just- <laughs> so I'm going to invent the way to do it. Damn it! That's
2: yeah. That's actually very accurate. That is actually what happened.
0: <laughs> I go back on my career and I'm like, "How many hours did I spend doing that before I learned about Terraform?" And I thought about it as I was getting ready to prep this sh- this session. I'm like, "I spent years." Yeah, doing I got really good at way. Excel
1: concat scripts. <laughs> Right. <laughs> for a while. I remember
0: I that had I had, a, I had a folder that I would SCP around servers, right? And I would just go grab it from the same place and it would instantiate my server and it had everything. And now I can do it with Terraform? Why did I do it that way for? So solving problems but doing it in innovative ways is really a fun place to be. It's been fun to watch the evolution of Terraform over the years. It's fun to watch how. And one last question about Terraform because I forgot to ask it earlier. What is the coolest thing that you've seen somebody, they've come up to you and said, I use Terraform to fix X. What is the coolest X that you've ever seen somebody find to use Terraform for?
2: Oh, uh, there. you know, there are a couple of, I, I would say that there's a couple like a really technology ones, um, but I'm going to stray away from those <laughs> because I think it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Um, so there, sometimes we have like a hackathon or something, um, and someone actually used Terraform to orchestrate their Christmas lights, um, which I was like, what? Yes, people did. They, they had, there was a, they had an API in front of their, uh, in front of their lights that they, they managed to, to build out. And they were like, we need to find a way to push out different patterns and things like that so that they just use Terraform for it. Um, another fun one is that we had a hackathon with a Spotify play- playlist, so someone wrote a Terraform provider for Spotify, and they were able to build their Spotify playlist from it, um, which was kind of, yeah, it was kind of fun. Uh, and then another one is that uh, a developer wrote a, a Terraform, as a joke, a Terraform provider for Domino's. Promise, not sponsored. Um, yeah, they had a Domino's pizza provider it's so, great <laughs> like those are, i'm just those are the ones that are not technical necessarily but like they're just very interesting uh day-to-day sort of things that people have decided to use terraform for that i, I thought were in- incredibly creative and a lot of fun to hear
0: the christmas lights one is fantastic because i'm a home automation nerd right like i've gotten really into home automation with raspberry Pis, and i've got a bunch of led lights and i've got to put up some permanent christmas lights and I know what I'm doing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> they they used to, I mean, there are people who use Terraform a lot for like their own, um, like growing, like they grow stuff. They do like vertical, not vertical farming necessarily, but they grow stuff. Um, they do it to help orchestrate changes to like watering systems and lighting. Um, they'll do it for, for various reasons, you know, just because they can't. A lot of people do it for wi- their Wi-Fi networks, actually, their wireless networks. Um, they'll configure different individual routers with Terraform and stuff. So, yeah, different use cases. Where can people
0: find you if they want to follow you on social media or and connect with you? Where where can we find you?
2: Yeah, you can find me on uh, pretty much all of the social media platforms under, um, it's the acronym, of J- a Jack of All Trades, Master of None zero 08. Says says J-O-A-T-M-O-N zero 08. Um, you can find me there. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm usually on the HashiCorp YouTube channels and streaming channels as well. So if you want to pop on into chat, say hi and make a suggestion on Whatever we're doing, whether it be breaking Vault or, uh, you know, running some Terraform on, on screen live, you know, just let me know. Uh, I would love to hear your suggestions. All right. Well, that is a wrap.
0: Thank you, Rosemary. Thank for joining us today. Really appreciate it. It was a fun conversation talking about infrastructure automation and your journey. Remember, you can help us out by leaving a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app by sharing our epi- or sharing our episodes with your social networks. You can follow me to continue the discussion, ask questions, and learn more about my hot takes on all things cloud ops by following me on most social media sites at Tater. You can also join our community. We've been talking a lot about community today by jumping into the NetApp official community Discord server at www.netappdiscord.com and you can learn about our product and service offerings and our Terraform provider behind our intelligent data infrastructure products by visiting the NetApp developer portal at developer.netapp.com. You can catch us in person and talk all things cloud ops as well at KubeCon EU, March 19th through the 21st in Paris. Visit spot.io to learn more. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. Phoebe, thank you so much for co-hosting with me. Rosemary, thank you for joining us. And until next time, we will catch you in the cloud.